Revelation chapter 3, verse 14 to 22, it says, And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say I'm rich. I have prospered. I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. The one that conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Lord, this is your word. God, we know that your word is powerful. (laughs) And so, Lord... May your word move in our hearts this morning. Bring us to a place of conviction if necessary. Bring us to a place of repentance, God. Help us to be committed to you. So Lord, we ask that you'd speak, and it's in Jesus' name, amen. So last week, you can all have a seat. Last week, we looked at the church in Philadelphia, uh, right? This was uh, the church... uh, known by its name, right? The church of brotherly love, so to speak. And to this church, Jesus writes that he has the key of David. Ultimately, he has the master key for anybody to uh, have access to the Father. Uh, Jesus said in John fourteen six, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes uh, to the Father except through me. And Jesus is essentially saying to that church, um, I'm the access point. I, I'm the way to get to the, fa- to the Father. And then In verse uh, 8, Jesus says, I've set before you an open door. Uh, If you remember, an open door uh, was throughout Scripture seen as an open door for ministry, uh, for for one to walk through. And and listen, when God opens a door for ministry, no man is able to shut it. If God has opened that door for ministry, he's calling you to walk through it. No one is going to be able to shut it. Uh, But we have to remember that sometimes... uh, Whatever ministry we we may be involved in, it may only be for a season. God has opened that door for a season, and He's waiting, uh, or He's He's leading you to another season. Uh, But He says this in verse eight. He says, "I know that you have but little power." Remember, uh, this church would have been predominantly made up of the lower class citizens of Philadelphia, and so it wasn't that they um, were lacking in in power and strength. It, It was that they were small. And we uh, discovered last week that God doesn't just use the big churches. He uses the small churches. And this is what Jesus would do through the church in Philadelphia. And, and uh, now to the church in Laodicea, right? Uh, there should be a map again. Uh, it's the red, right? So the last church on our stop is Laodicea. Um, and uh, ignore those other three little dots um, but Laodicea is right below Philadelphia, obviously. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure that one out. Um, but Laodicea uh, was 
inland, much like the other churches that we looked at. But to this church, uh, Jesus gives an encouraging word, uh, excuse me, a discouraging word, a rebuke, if you will. Uh, in verse 14, it says, and to the church of Laodicea, right. So uh, Laodicea was known as a great banking and financial center. Uh, they were a very wealthy city, and it uh, also was known for their uh, clothing manufacture. Uh, they had a great medical center there, and they were famous for their eye and ear ointment. Uh, that's going to be important to note, because as Jesus uh, gets on with his message to the church in Laodicea, he points, uh, he points salve out for their eyes, and so we'll get to that in just a minute. But in AD 61, the city was destroyed by an earthquake, and the citizens of Laodicea, the people who lived there, uh, they were so rich that they did not want government help to rebuild the city, so they rebuilt the city themselves. And to this church, Jesus introduces himself as, as this in verse 14, again, the words of the amen the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. So Jesus introduces himself to the church in three different ways. First, he introduces himself as the amen, uh, which the amen, amen translates to truth. It, it is a formula of solemn expression of certainty. Listen, Jesus doesn't just have the truth. Jesus is the truth. What did he say? He says, I am the way, the truth. Jesus is the truth. So if you're looking for truth, look to Jesus. Jesus is saying, I am the true one, but he also says that he's faithful. Uh, that is who he is. It's, it's his character. It's, it's who he is. He is reliable. He is trustworthy. You can believe in him. And check this out. When you're faithless, Scripture says that he remains faithful. His faithfulness is not contingent upon us. Praise God for that. 2 Timothy 2.3, if we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. There's no changing in God's faithfulness. He remains reliable even when your faith is unstable. He remains trustworthy even when others around you cannot be trusted. And you can believe in him because he's faithful in keeping his promise to the end. Jesus said to his disciples, some of the very last things he said to his disciples was, uh, go and make disciples, right? Go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? And, and he says this, and lo, or behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He's faithful to keep that promise, not just to those apostles, disciples, uh, but to us as well. Jesus is with us. He's faithful. So he's the amen. He's the faithful one. He's the true witness. Remember in Revelation chapter 2, verse 13, uh, Jesus points out this guy named Antipas. Not, not much is known about him except for this, that he was a faithful witness, right? How would you like that to be said of you at your uh, memorial service? Uh, we don't know much about this guy, but he was faithful. He was faithful unto death. He stood up for righteousness. He de declared, he proclaimed the name of Jesus, and that's all we know about it. This man served as an example for the suffering saints. Yet here, Jesus is ultimately, ultimately saying this. He is the supreme witness. By dying a death, only the Son of God could die for the forgiveness of our sins. He, he's saying, listen, I am witness to the faithfulness of God, to the truth of God. Uh, and there's no doubt within history 
we can look to certain men as examples of how to hold fast to the Lord in the midst of trials. And we, we hold them in high esteem. We look to them and we commend them for their, their steadfastness when it came to persecution. But listen, Jesus takes the top place when it comes to suffering for the Lord. He bore witness to God being his father. Uh, that's ultimately why everybody wanted to kill him. It is because he was claiming deity. He, he was calling himself God, which Jesus is God. But I love this dialogue uh, between him and Pilate in John eighteen thirty seven. It says, uh, then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And so, essentially, Jesus is pointing to, to the truth being in him, just like he, he said to Pilate, for this purpose I was born, for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Jesus, again, is pointing to the fact that the only place to find truth is in him, in the person of Jesus Christ, in the, the word of truth that became flesh and dwelt among us. But then he says this, the beginning of God's creation. Now, we all know who the first created being was, right? No? Starts with A? Adam? Okay. Uh, now, this is not Jesus saying, I'm the first created being. If you understand Jesus as being fully God and fully man, uh, Jesus has always existed. Uh, it says before the foundation of the world, uh, Jesus existed. So Jesus wasn't the first created being. We, we have to look a little bit deeper into that one word being, or excuse me, beginning. Uh, the beginning actually translates into ruler. Uh, so it doesn't mean... Uh, the beginning as far as placement it means that he's ruler he, he's overall he's the beginning Jesus is saying he's the ruler of the father's creation and so how he introduces himself to Laodicea is he says I, I'm the truth I'm I'm faithful and I am ruler of all that my father has created and then he gets into verse 15 through 16 he says I know your works he says, you're neither hot or cold, cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Famous verse, right? We've heard it before. Uh, you're neither cold nor hot. You're lukewarm. Uh, but I think this verse is so often misquoted. I think this verse is so uh, most often taken out of context. Uh, context is, is Jesus is using something that this church actually experienced on a daily basis. The, the church in Laodicea, the city in Laodicea, would actually go to a local water source to well up lukewarm water. They would actually drink lukewarm water. Rather than going to the Hierapolis and getting hot water for healing and, and for soothing uh, purposes or, or going to the pure water of Colossae, they would be content with sticking with where they were at and drinking lukewarm water. On a hot day, let's have some lukewarm water. On a cold day, let's have some lukewarm water. Uh, they were content with drawing water from this lukewarm source, which was neither refreshing nor comforting. And to this church, Jesus is saying, listen, just like that lukewarm water, 
that you're drinking, that, that's you and your walks with me. He, remember, he's talking to the church. He's saying, listen, you're neither refreshing and you're neither soothing. You're lukewarm, so lukewarm that I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. Essentially, Jesus is saying, I don't have room for you. It's not refreshing. You're not comforting. You're not, you're not benefiting anyone around you because you're just lukewarm. And Jesus is ultimately going to say, you need to decide what you're going to be. You're either going to be a source of relief or a source of healing. But since you haven't decided, uh, and ultimately not making a decision of one or the other, you've ultimately decided to stick with you yourselves being lukewarm. I don't want anything to do with you. I mean, usually when you spit something out of your mouth, it's either because you don't like the taste or because the texture is weird, right? Jesus is saying, uh-uh. I'm going to spit you out. But here's how it's normally taught, right? And I'm, I, I'm sure we've all heard this at one point or another. Uh, the only option, you've got to be on fire for the Lord. That's it. If you're, if you're lukewarm, then that's not good. If you're cold, that's not good. Uh, we've heard it preached time and time again that you, you just have to be on fire for the Lord. And let me tell you, I do agree with that. Uh, but let me ask you a question. On a hot day, do you go for a hot cup of coffee? Go for something cold, for something refreshing that's going to quench your thirst. I don't believe Jesus is saying that cold here is necessarily a bad thing. And I don't believe he's saying that the only option is to be hot. You're either a source of refreshment or you're a source of soothing, comforting to other people around you. He says the only thing that he's going to spit out of his mouth are the people who are what? Lukewarm. While I agree with being on fire for the Lord and igniting a flame within our families, our communities, and our workplaces, I believe, now hear me out, God has called some of us to be cold, to quench the, the, the fires of hell. Do you remember what Jude said? He says that you might save some from the fires of hell. Uh, how, how do you combat fire? Water. Cold. You know, I, I mean, you're going to throw coldness towards the hot because it, it's uncomfortable. Uh, and some people, unfortunately, unfortunately, like being around the flames of hell. See, I believe we're either cold or we're hot. But if we're lukewarm, Jesus says, I've got to spit you out. And so as I was studying this, I had the question come into my mind. What does someone who is lukewarm look like? Um, and maybe this is some of us this morning. Uh, I, I know as I'm reading scripture, uh, the Lord keeps speaking to my heart. So as much as this may be a message for you this morning, this is also a message for me. But what does someone who is lukewarm look like? Number one, they don't really want to be saved from their sin. They only want to be saved from the penalty of sin, right? What is the penalty of sin? It says in Scripture that the penalty of sin is death, eternal separation from God. They only want to have a, a, a ticket out of hell so that they don't have to endure torment for the rest of their life. The only reason they've given their life to Christ is because they don't want to face the consequences of their sin. There have been many times where I'm sure you and I have gone up to an altar call right after we've sinned, thinking that, well, if I just say a sinner's prayer, then that's good enough. No. Jesus said to follow me even 
even through every life season. It's not just in certain seasons. But lukewarm people, Christians, they don't really want to be saved from their sin. They want to be saved from the penalty of their sin. Number two is they're moved by stories about people who do radical things for Christ, yet they do not do radical things themselves. Uh, They call radical what Jesus expects of all of his followers. Like when you get to scripture and it says, husbands, love your wives. Like, what? That's radical. How can I do that? Or, or, or look out for the interests of others. Wait, you mean I got to put someone before me? Oh, that's radical. I don't know about that. Uh, no, that's what Jesus calls his followers to do, to be. Uh, but they call the basic commandments of the Lord radical, thinking that, oh, man, those are the super spiritual people. Number three is they rarely share their faith with their neighbors, co-workers, or friends. Charles Spurgeon said this, you are either a missionary or an imposter. Listen, we don't have to go across seas. We don't have to go to another city. If God calls you there, praise God for it. But listen, start with where you're at. Start with sharing the gospel with your coworkers. Start with sharing the gospel with your neighbors. Start with, how about this one, sharing the gospel with your family. You don't have to go across uh, the seas. My pastor always says the first place to start is across the street. But how many of us have it in our minds, oh, I'll just, I'll just let somebody else get to them. You know who will get to them is the one who knocks on doors. And it's not Jesus. Oftentimes it's a cult. Uh, and anyways, share your faith. <laughs> Number four is this. Uh, they think about life on earth much more often than eternity in heaven. Uh, their focus is here. That's uh, all they're, they're thinking about. It's all they're consumed about is what's going on in front of them, what they can see, what they can feel, what, what they can hear right here. But they're never looking forward into what is in store for them in eternity. Number five is they love their luxuries and rarely give to the poor in, true, in truly sacrificial ways. You mean I, Jesus calls us to give to the poor? Yeah, he told his disciples... I'm not going to be around much longer, but the poor, you'll always have them with you. And sometimes we just hold on to our stuff. Uh, we idolize what we have. We won't let it go because we're materialistic. How about this one? Number six is they don't live by faith because their lives are structured so they never have to. Never willing to take a step of faith. Always wanting to play it safe, so to speak. Uh, well, God might call you to go talk to your neighbor. Ah, I don't, don't know about that. I, I, I'm going to play it safe. And, you know, because what if they say no? Well, what if they say no? At least you planted a seed. Remember, we talked about that last week. But they don't live by faith. Their lives are structured so they never have to. And the last one is this. They give God their leftovers, not their first and best. Unfortunately for many, there will be a day where those who thought they were following the Lord will be greeted with this, Matthew seven twenty three. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name? And then I will declare to them, 
I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. It will be a day where many people will hear that, thinking that, oh, because I'm going to church or because I'm reading my Bible or because I'm... Listen, following Jesus is what makes you a Christian, okay? Not reading your Bible, not praying. It's committing your life to Christ. It's choosing to follow him above all else. A natural byproduct from following Christ and submitting to Christ is picking up this on a daily. It's praying, it's worshiping, it's getting to church. Listen, follow Jesus or don't follow him at all. Listen to this comment from uh, a commentator. He says, here's what Christ thinks of his church. Perhaps none of the seven letters is more appropriate to the 20th century than this. It describes vividly the respectable, sentimental, skin-deep religiosity which is so widespread among us today. Here's a call out. Our Christianity is flabby and anemic. We appear to have taken a lukewarm bath of religion. The sign of genuine saving faith is this. It's a passionate commitment to the fame of God. It is a passionate commitment to the people of God, to the mission of God. It's saying, Jesus, I'm following you with all of my being, everything I've got. And listen, if you are lukewarm this morning, if, if you're neither cold nor hot, if you're lukewarm and, and one of these seven things kind of describes you, listen, Jesus is not playing around He is serious about being lukewarm. Jesus says, if you're lukewarm, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. Here's another way to put it. Lukewarm, okay, you're coasting. You're just whatever, man, I'm a Christian. I'm, you know, I'm saved. At the end of the day, I'm going to heaven. I'll go to church occasionally. I'll read my Bible when I feel like it. I'll worship, maybe, you know, get a little song out of me. Uh, You know, if there's somebody on the corner... I might wave at them, but I could never give them anything. Listen, check yourselves. Take a spiritual inventory this morning, this week. Ask yourselves, am I really following Jesus? Or am I lukewarm? Verse 17, he says, for you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Uh, Listen, another uh, sign of a lukewarm Christian is they don't recognize their spiritual poverty because their eyes are set on what they have materially. It's ultimately the complete contrast of Matthew 5, 6. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Vance Habner says this, He says, the cause of Christ has been hurt more by Sunday morning bench warmers who pretend to love Christ, who call him Lord, but do not do his commands, than by all the publicans and sinners. Ouch. Listen, Jesus never called people to follow him and then just be a Sunday morning bench warmer. You know what he said in the Gospels, right? As he's saying, hey, all of these things are going to come upon you. He says, occupy. Do something for the sake of the Gospel until I come. Tell your neighbors about me. Tell your friends about me. Go serve at your church. Go do this. Go do that in the name of Jesus Christ. All because of what? All because you've been saved. 
because of what I've done for you, there should be a, nat- a, a supernatural outpouring into others' lives. Laodicea was an incredibly rich city, but the problem with the city is that they essentially worshipped their wealth. They, they loved their money. Uh, but as I was studying this, I was reminded of what Solomon said in Proverbs 30, verse 8. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. And I don't think Solomon was thinking about physical food when he wrote that. I don't think he was thinking, well, give me the healthy stuff. You know, like the keto diet and, you know, the, the protein burgers at In-N-Out. Give me that needful stuff. I don't think he was talking about that food. I think he was alluding to what Jesus would ultimately tell us in the Gospels. He would say that his food is the word of God. What is the food that is most needful for us? Number one is the word of God. In Matthew 4, 4, what did Jesus use to combat against the enemy? The word of God. But he said this, he says, but Jesus told him, no. Scripture says people don't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That is where we find our fill. That is where we find what is needful for us. I think we can all agree to this, that money is fleeting, right? Anybody spend a couple bucks this morning? You spent money? Yeah, it's gone, right? It's gone. It's fleeting. It's here today and gone tomorrow. And if you're not wise with your finances, it'll disappear faster than you realize. But listen, the word of God It never fades. It never loses its value. It never ceases to speak to hearts, change hearts, and transform minds. And yet, you know how often we just leave this book on our shelves? Or how often we just wait until Sunday morning to come and hear the preacher preach on the Bible? Listen, uh, you'll discover that this food, the Word of God, is most needful for you when you get in it yourself. So my encouragement to you and I this morning is let's make sure that we don't just get into the word of God on Sunday mornings, but we make it a habit to get into the word of God every single day. Amen. Number two is this. The food that is needful for you and I is the Lord's will. Jesus said in John four thirty four. then Jesus explained, my nourishment comes from doing the will of God who sent me and from finishing his work. What is the will of God? Simply put, it's following Jesus. It's living lives that reflect his heart. And it's making disciples. It's not complicated. I think oftentimes we make it complicated and we make it uh, mean something entirely different. Uh, Many of you might have uh, the question, well, I don't know the will of God for my life. Yes, you do. It's right here. God's will for you is found within Scripture. The question I have for you this morning is, when is the last time you actually opened the Word of God? To discover the will of God, you have to get into the Word of God. You have to be sensitive to the leading of of the Holy Spirit and understand that the will of God is brought by the Word of God. And if what you're reading or what you're seeing in your own life, if you think that is the will of God, but it doesn't line up with the Word of God, then it probably is not the will of God. The will of God will always line up with the word of God. Here's the thing. Here's the part where I think we get stuck sometimes. So when we come across the basic commands of scripture, we read them and we're like, yeah, that sounds awesome. Totally going to do that. 
Then we get home and we totally don't do that. We, we do the complete opposite. We, we, we hear it, we, we soak it in, but then we forget this one part that we're called to apply the word of God. See, I, I've discovered for my, my own life personally that, uh, and it could be true of all of us at some point, a healthy spiritual diet is number one, taking in the word of God. It's taking in the food that is most needful for you, but it's also receiving the word of God. What, what you're doing right now and what I do throughout the week, uh, but it's also giving the word of God. Uh, because if we just take and receive, we're just takers. We're just hoarding the truths of God to ourselves, not willing to really give it out. And, and I think we run into the risk or the danger of becoming spiritually unfit. We're hearing the truths of God, but it just, it's here. Uh, because, well, I don't really know that much. You know, I'll, I'll leave it for the experts, the ones that have graduated from seminary and all that. No, don't do that. You know, none of the disciples had an associate's degree. <laughs> none of them had a bachelor's degree. In Acts, it says that certain religious leaders looked at these disciples and they realized that they were, what, uneducated men, but they had spent time with Jesus. Spend time with Jesus. Take in the word and give out the word. Uh, shine your light like, like Jesus calls us to. But I love this wake-up call. Uh, so Jesus is pretty, he's not messing around, guys. <laughs> Jesus gives them a spiritual wake-up call. He says, okay, you're wretched. You're pitiable. You're poor. You're blind and naked. It's like Jesus taking one punch after the other. Like, church, what is going on? I need to ruffle your feathers a little bit. Uh, and he's ultimately saying this, you may feel content spiritually. However, however, you're miserable. You're miserable because you're forgetting me, much like the first church that we learned about, that they had abandoned their first love. Uh, listen, uh, you may feel content spiritually, but inside, Jesus is calling you out. He's saying you're wretched, you're pitiable, you're poor, you're blind and naked, all because you're good with coasting. I'm fine. Come to church when I feel like it, read my Bible when I feel like it, pray when I feel like it. I'm good. I know when I die, I'm going to heaven. Matthew 7. Many on that day will hear Jesus say, I never knew you. See, what makes a person wretched is forgetting Christ and being apart from Christ. Remember Paul in Romans chapter 7, after he has that big... Uh, back and forth thing with, I know what to do, but I don't do it, and I do what I don't want to, it's just one of those amazing verses, but he, he says this, he says, wretched man that I am, Paul understood his spiritual poverty, he was like, I messed up, I need help, who will deliver me from this body of death, and his answer is this, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, okay, that is good news, because if Paul was wretched, Guess who else is wretched? You and I. And we need Jesus. We, we, we need him more than anything else. And even though Jesus is saying to this church, you may be a top manufacturer in clothing and have healing solution for your eyes and ears, you're actually blind. And to top that off, you're naked. Even though you have the best clothing around and the best ointment for your eyes, 
You're the ones that are actually blind. You're the ones that are actually naked. Verse 18, Jesus, so Jesus gives the rebuke. He says, you're lukewarm, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. And then he says, uh, here's the remedy. The remedy is this in verse 18. I counsel, you, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Here's Jesus' remedy, very simply put. I don't think I can put it any more simpler. Ready for this? Jesus' remedy. Come to me. That's it. Just come to me. He says, I counsel you to buy from me. Now, Jesus wasn't like physically knocking on the door of the church of Laodicea and saying, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm Jesus. I'm the salesperson. I got some gold. I got some clothing for you. You know, we can make a good deal here. No, Jesus wasn't selling anything physically. Uh, everything that he was offering uh, was brought to a place where they could understand uh, more clearly what it might look like on this side of heaven. Now, uh, let's look at these just for a minute. Uh, gold refined by fire. It speaks of wealth far beyond what we can have in this life. And truthfully, or ultimately, Jesus is pointing to how they will find something worth more than what they have when they come to him. He's saying, listen, you think you have riches now? If you would only come to me, you would understand the riches that are found in, in me. This is what Paul wanted the church in Ephesus to know. In Ephesians 3, 8 through 9, to me, though I am the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable, what's that word? Riches of Christ. And Paul alludes to the riches of Christ in Ephesians 1, 7 through 14. Uh, you can read it on your own time, but he says there's redemption through his blood. There's forgiveness of sins. There's knowledge of the mystery of his will. There's the message of truth, the sealing of the Holy Spirit, the guarantee of our inheritance. Listen, all of what you have in Christ is worth far more than what you could ever attain in this world. A committed follower Listen, somebody who's on fire or who's refreshing uh, will not be focused on what he or she can gain this side of heaven. Let me tell you something. When you die and take your final breath here on, on earth and your first breath in heaven, your net worth won't mean squat. Okay, how much you have in the bank won't matter one bit. You know why? Because you can't take it with you. It's not going to matter. What will matter is what you've done for Christ, what you have done with what you know about Jesus. Um, many of you have heard of C.T. Studd. Uh, he's the one that has that line, only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. Have you heard that before? Uh, but it's, there's more than that. Listen to this. Two little lines I heard one day. Traveling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart, and from my mind would not depart. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one, soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day, my Lord to meet and stand before his judgment seat. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, the still small voice gently pleads for a better choice, 
bidding me selfish aims to leave and to God's holy will to cleave. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, a few brief years, each with its burdens, hopes, and fears, each with its days I must fulfill, living for self or in his will. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. When this bright world would tempt me sore, when Satan would a victory score, when self would seek to have its way, then help me, Lord, with joy to say, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Give me, Father, a purpose deep in joy or sorrow, thy word to keep faithful and true, whatever the strife, pleasing thee in my daily life. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Oh, let my love with fervor burn, and from the world now let me turn, living for thee and thee alone, bringing thee pleasure on thy throne. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Now let me say thy will be done, and when at last I'll hear the call, I know I'll say twas worth it all. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. The only thing that will last is what is done for Christ. So many of us are putting all our emphasis in worldly stuff today, thinking that that's where it counts. My friend, you are greatly mistaken. Only what's done for Christ will last. Jesus says he'll give them white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, which ultimately represents this cleansing and purity that comes with the forgiveness of Christ. He goes on to say that I'm offering salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Christ was essentially saying, you're known for your eye ointment, but you're blind, church. You can't see. And listen, to be spiritually blind is to be worse than physically blind. And Jesus is offering enlightenment of the eyes, and, and this is what the devil has done. He's done this in our world, and, and he's done it to us at some point where he's blinded our, our eyes before Christ. In 2 Corinthians 4, 4, it says, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. That is why our prayer continually is that the Holy Spirit would en- enlighten them, that they would come, and their, that their eyes would be opened, because the God of this world, Paul says, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. But here's what Christ came to do in Isaiah 42, verse 7. To open the eyes of the blind, to bring prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. That's what Jesus came to do. And he closes verse 19 and 20. Normally I would have Ian come up, but Ian's not here. And uh, verse 19, if you still got your Bibles and you're still tracking along stay with me verse 19 those whom i love i reprove and discipline so be zealous and repent if jesus did not love the church or any church for that matter he would let the churches continue on and their their sin without correction continuing in their failings but because of his great love for them and for us What does Jesus say? Those who I I love, I discipline. If I didn't love my kids, I would let them do whatever. And they would cause quite a big mess 
everywhere they go. But because I love them, when they disobey, when they fall short, when they make a mistake, when they're disrespectful, you name it, there are consequences. Why? Not because I want to see them punished. Not because I want to see them miserable in their room kicking and screaming. It's because I love them. And I want them to learn from their mistake. That's ultimately what Jesus is saying. He's saying, listen, I'm I'm going to discipline you. Uh, Not because I want to see you squirm in your seats. Uh, I'm disciplining you because I love you. And Jesus is ultimately saying this. He says, I love you, church. I love you, church of Laodicea. But you're in the wrong. And you need to be corrected. And when you are corrected, when you realize you're wrong, Jesus says, then repent. Don't make the same mistake. Repent and be zealous in your repenting. I love this in verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Okay, so the other day, <laughs> I, w- I, was meeting, I was going to meet with a couple of pastors. I got there a little bit early to the coffee shop, right? And so I was sitting there and I was reading a book and all of a sudden my wife calls and and, and she was frantic. She was like adamant that somebody was at the door at our house. Now, the only reason she knew that was because uh, my sister-in-law, her sister, is, is living with us until her husband uh, gets back from deployment. But uh, her and her sister were convinced that somebody was trying to break in to the house. The, the doorknob is jiggling, the windows there's tapping on the windows that i mean the dogs anytime a dog barks in your home alone you're like peeping out your your window like who's who's out there they were doing that that all and so i'm sitting at this table and i stopped what i was doing and i got in my car and started making my way towards home ready to punish that intruder okay no more than a couple of minutes of going down the street i get another call hey it's the bug guy And so, uh, <laughs> but the entrance to the home, right, is the what? The front door, right? And so when anybody is trying to, to get in, normally they will try the front door and just kick it down, whatever. Well, the front door, uh, you open that door to invite people in, right? Uh, when you know somebody is coming over, when you hear a knock on the door, uh, typically you answer it unless it's the solar people coming to sell you solar again, if you're a solar salesperson, no offense. Um, but you open that door to invite people in. And even when, when it's time to go, what do you do with the door? You walk the people out the door and you close the door, signifying that it's time to go. But we all know those people who overstay their welcome. Um, <laughs> but here's the thing. Many of us don't allow Jesus to stay within our home. He's knocking on the door, right? He's knocking and knocking and knocking and knocking. And we go to the door and we're like, Jesus, it's you. And we invite him in and we say, when are you going to leave? How often do we do that? Think about it. You've, you, you hear the knock all the time. And maybe you're not a believer this morning and you're hearing the knock. Uh, but, but we do that so occasionally. Whether it's a believer or an unbeliever, we'll invite Jesus in momentarily. Jesus, come and have some dinner with me. But uh, I only got till this certain amount of time. Listen, you don't tell your Lord and Master that. When Jesus knocks on the door, you open the door and you allow him to come in. And you allow him to stay in your house forever. 
Jesus wants us to open the door so he can stay with us. It's not this, I came to bring you some Chick-fil-A. I knew you were hungry. No, I want to spend my life with you. This speaks of sweet fellowship and a closeness to the Lord. And Jesus is encouraging the church in Laodicea to open their hearts to them. And he's doing the same with us today. Uh, as we wrap up our study in, these, in the letter to the churches, at least, um, maybe today is the day you need to open that door. And you need to decide to open the door to your life to Christ. Not just this one time, uh, Jesus, you can come in today, but tomorrow you've got to go. It's forever. Christ stands. He waits long at the door of the sinner's heart. He knocks, uses judgments, mercies, reproofs, exhortations to induce the sinner to repent and turn to him. And he lifts up his voice, calls loudly by the word, and ministers in spirit. Listen, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And, and if you have not opened the door of your heart this morning to Jesus. He's knocking and he's waiting to come in just like he was with the church in Laodicea. He says, listen, I want to come in. I want to have dinner with you. I want to fellowship with you. I want to commune with you. But you're resistant. You haven't opened the door because you don't want Jesus to know what's in your house. Jesus knows and he's still knocking and he's still giving the invitation. He's saying, listen, just open the door. Just let me come in. Your sins will be forgiven. You'll, f you'll find redemption. You'll be sealed with the Holy Spirit. You can know that all the wrong things that you've ever done in your life will be forgiven if you just let me in. And so we have a choice. You have a choice. I have a choice. When Jesus knocks, are you going to open? Or are you just going to let him stand outside? So Jesus' call to this church in Laodicea was this. Stop being lukewarm. You're either cold or hot. And number two, I'm knocking at the door. Let me in. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. God, thank you for the church in Laodicea. Lord, the, the city that this church was situated in was very wealthy and very... Uh, materialistic and or that they, th they thought they had it all figured out with with what they had materially but lord they really had nothing jesus if we don't have you we have nothing so jesus we need you scripture says that apart from you we can do nothing and lord there's no amount of works that we can do to earn our way into heaven it's only through jesus so, Lord, I pray that if anyone in here this morning is sensing that knock on the door of their heart, uh, just like the church in Laodicea sensed the knock on, on their church's door, Lord, I pray that these people, whoever it is in here or watching online, would open the door of their heart to you. And that they would, they would invite you in, knowing that you've come to forgive sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, Lord, if there's anyone in here this morning, God, would you just simply have them call out to you, Lord, I invite you in. Lord, thank you for your grace and your mercy. 
God, I pray that you would be glorified in our lives. Help us to be on fire in a sense that we are soothing to others. Or, God, help us to be cold in a sense that we are refreshing to others. But, Lord, help us to stay away from being lukewarm. And so, Lord, we commit our lives to you. And it's in Jesus' mighty name we pray.